Bibles this morning, if you will, with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. For a long time now, through the springtime, we've been teaching about why Pentecost. Attempting to answer that question, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I know that I don't. But we have come up with some pretty good answers, I believe, from the scriptures and some good information that every Christian needs to understand. And our first emphasis was, of course, to look at the spirit-filled life of an individual, uh, what it means to be full of the Holy Ghost, what that means in New Testament terminology, what happens when we're filled with the Spirit, some advantages of that. And, of course, when you get into talking about being filled with the Spirit, you always, at least if you do it in the New Testament version, you're going to be talking about speaking in tongues. And you're also going to be talking about gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit. There's a personal level, and then there is a corporate level. There is the Spirit-filled life for you individually, and there's some very powerful blessings for you individually. And then there are also some very powerful blessings for Spirit-filled church. And so in the process of first looking at the individual experience of being filled with the Spirit, we walk down through the book of Acts, looking at different occasions when people were filled with the Spirit and what happened. And so we now come to the part of the study where we're looking at a Spirit-filled church. And so we, again, are going to walk through the book of Acts and look at what that looks like. Now, a Spirit-filled church is simply a congregation of people who themselves are Spirit-filled. It's not just a title or a name of a church. Because you could, uh, you could call a church anything, but that doesn't necessarily make it what it is. It's the people in it that determine what kind of church that it is. Because the church is a body. It's a group of people. And in this instance, it's a, it's a spirit-filled congregation. People who are filled with the Holy Ghost, who regularly meet and assemble. Hebrews 10.25, it's so important that we assemble, we come together uh, to worship the Lord. But these are people who are filled with the Spirit, who meet regularly for worship. We've been doing that. To worship. Number two, to receive the Word, because this is one of the primary places where we will be able to sit under, if I can use that terminology, uh, ministry gifts that God sends and has given to the church to minister to us, to sit under the Word, and also to fellowship with other believers, but most of all, to fellowship with God with those other believers and create a corporate atmosphere where the Spirit of God can move. Psalm 22, 3 says God inhabits the praises of His people. And I think it's interesting that that's plural, people, not just a person. We know that you can, you can worship God wherever you are by yourself and the presence of God can come into the place where you are as well. But we also understand that there's something very special that happens when people begin to worship God in spirit and in truth, and they do it collectively as a group. And the presence of God, the anointing of God, that corporate anointing we call it, comes in, and it's so much greater than what we can do on our own. And the synergies that are created in that kind of an atmosphere is amazing. It's just amazing what the Lord can do. 
And so that's one of the reasons that, that a spirit-filled congregation meets is to fellowship both with God and with other believers. And then, of course, we also come to serve because the church is a body. The church is a gathering of people of all ages and all races and backgrounds and everything else. That's the picture of a, of, of a New Testament church. And so, therefore, when we gather there are needs that arise. There are things that have to be done, things that have to be taken care of. And so we come to church and we also serve in addition to all those other things. And the New Testament paints a wonderful picture of what a New Testament church really should look like. It provides instructions for us and guidance. We see an example for us of how a New Testament spirit-filled church should look and how it should function. And so whatever that we do today as a church should line up with what you can find in Scripture. Now, I know that there are things that we uh, are involved with today that are not specifically in the Word. For instance, there is no, there is no word, air conditioning, two words, in the Scripture. But aren't you glad for an air conditioning? Amen. I hope that Mr. Willis Carrier made it to heaven, because I'd sure like to tell him thank you. Um, but you know, there's no, uh, there's no word, there's no phrase in the Bible, Sunday school or children's church, but yet we know how important it is to teach our children and, and how needy it is that, that small children particularly are taught and instructed on their level where they can receive. And, and we're so grateful for everybody who serves and makes all that happen. Praise God, I, I do appreciate your service. And if you're not serving, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I have to put this plug in here. If you're not serving, you really ought to pray about serving, even if it's just one Sunday a month, to be involved in what the Lord is doing. Because we don't just say it as a cliche. We believe it, and we are experiencing it. When you get involved with God's business, God gets involved with yours. Amen. So... We're going to walk through some scriptures in the book of Acts and look at the picture of a spirit-filled church. The first one is Acts chapter 2. We've already looked at this one some, but we're going to finish it up hopefully today and maybe get to some more. But chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So nobody was left out. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Notice this was a beginning. They began to speak with other tongues, so it, it didn't end on this day. And neither probably was it completely perfected in everybody's life on this day because it was a process that would continue. And the speaking with tongues is a never-ending stream in this lifetime for us to communicate with God and to worship God, and especially in the areas of praise and, and prayer. It's so important. So they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if, if the Spirit gave the utterance, then that means it was not a natural thing. There was no recording played in the heavens that boomed out the syllables that people were to speak, but the Spirit gave utterance on the inside of people, just like He does today. Now, you choose whether or not you speak those utterances. 
The Holy Spirit gives, but you choose to release. Amen. And so it's important to understand that that when we're baptized in the Spirit, God's not going to come down and take hold of you and make you do anything. You have to yield. And, and, and you, can't, uh, you can't really speak with your mouth closed. And uh, if you're expecting that you're going to speak in a language that's given to you by the Holy Ghost, then that means it's not English. And I know that's a hurdle. And all of us that have been baptized in the Holy Ghost, we jumped over that hurdle. We threw caution to the wind and just began to let it loose. And I remember how that was, even though it was so many years ago. But I want to tell you today that if you will just step out by faith, God will meet you and the anointing of the Holy Ghost will come upon you and you will never be the same. Oh, what benefits to being able to communicate in the Spirit, in other tongues. So, we're wanting to look at this, however, from the group setting. What, what was going on here? Well, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that they were here by divine command. Jesus had commanded them, don't go anywhere. Wait here in Jerusalem until you are clothed upon. That's the old English word was endued in, in Luke 24. But it means clothed upon with power from on high. So power is our spiritual clothing. That's, that's what God wants to clothe every Christian with, supernatural power. And it's not a different power than Jesus had. It's the same spirit. And so everything Jesus did to bless people potentially is available for you to do as well. You just, again, have to choose. You go down the aisle and you just feel prompted to speak to someone. You choose whether or not you will. You're in a situation and maybe somebody's talking about things. Uh, maybe their problems, their needs. And all of a sudden you are impressed and you know the Spirit of God is leading you. You need to just kind of uh, break into the conversation. And maybe just touch them, take them by the hand. And you just need to say, I want to pray for you. Or let's pray about this. Not only will you maybe save 10 minutes, but the power of God can make more change in a person's life through a quick prayer than through hours of counseling. Amen. Amen. And you don't have to be a preacher to do this. You don't have to be ordained to do this. You are already called and really already ordained by the Lord to be a witness and to do the works of Jesus. And so this is very, very important that we yield to the Holy Spirit. But notice these people as they gathered. They gathered in, in, in obedience to God. They were there waiting on the promise of the Father. And so when the day of Pentecost came, that's when the Holy Spirit came in His fullness. And He came to indwell every believer. And that's why Jesus had told them, and I'm sure they probably had a hard time understanding and dealing with that one, why, how that it was going to be better that He go away. But that's what He told them. And He said the reason why. Because if I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. And they didn't probably understand all there was to know about it. But on this day, they got acquainted with the great Comforter. And the Holy Spirit came in fullness. And that's when they overflowed. And the overflow included this language of the Holy Ghost. 
the speaking with tongues. And so they were there in obedience to God. So notice some things that were uh, common. Number one is obedience. They were there out of obedience. We come to church today for a number of reasons, not the least of which is obedience. I don't always feel like coming to church. Amen. This morning was a good morning to roll over and go back to sleep. But it wasn't as good a morning as coming for coming to church, though. So I just had to get up. Amen. So we come out of obedience. And number two, notice the other thing that happened here is they were praying. They were praying. This was a part of what they were doing as they were waiting in that interim between the resurrection, I mean the ascension of Jesus, and the coming of the day of Pentecost. They were spending time in prayer. And they were with one accord, meaning they were in unity. Now, as we pointed out a number of times, because it's important to understand, this is not talking about some carnal unity or physical unity or, <coughs> excuse me, unity in non-essential tastes and preferences. That's not what this is about. It's not everybody stayed until they all liked T-bone steaks. Or everybody stayed until they all went out and bought the same kind of shoes. That's not what this is about at all. Those things are really not so important. Whatever kind of shoes you wear or clothes you wear or whatever you have for supper, that's not a big deal. But what is a big deal is that we are in one accord around the word. If you want to know about agreement, which by the way, according to Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 18, it is the place of power. And if you want to know about that kind of power that comes in agreement, you need to understand that the main source and the main place of agreement for us is the Word of God. I don't have to look like you. I don't have to act like you in every way. I don't have to like everything you like, and you don't have to like everything I like. But if we are going to have spiritual agreement that can cause things to come to pass in the earth, if we're going to have the power of agreement that Jesus talked about, that anything would be done for us of our Father which is in heaven, then we have to come into agreement about the Word of God. And one of the main places they were in agreement at this particular time was just simply being there. You see, sometimes this obedience issue and unity issue, we can kind of put it to the side. We think we've kind of got that, you know, we've got that down. We know what that's about. But obedience is one of the most important things you will ever, ever, ever learn in all of your Christian life. It's better than sacrifice, according to the prophet Samuel as he spoke to King Saul. It is such a powerful thing. The value of following instructions... Have you ever seen people that just had a problem following instructions? All of that material that came in that box and that little booklet or piece of paper and how easy it is to think, well, I know about this. I'm mechanical. I can do this. It's simple. It's easy. I don't need all of that. And then 20, 25 minutes in, you realize I put the wrong thing in the wrong place and not only have I wasted this 25 minutes, but I've got to now take the time it takes to undo this to get it right. Why? Because I didn't follow instructions. I just didn't do it. In the book of Acts, uh, Exodus, rather, in chapter 15, I just want to give you a couple examples to go along with uh, 
uh, Acts chapter 2. And you'll have to forgive me for being slow today, but I just have to follow the Holy Ghost. I, I, uh, I love to get all excited and get loud, and maybe we will before it's over with. But, but this instruction is so important. If we want a Spirit-filled church, if we really, truly want, in the fullest extent, a Spirit-filled church, if we want God to do everything He wants to do, if we want to be a part of a miracle place, a healing place, a deliverance place, then we've got to learn these lessons. And one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn concerning church is obedience. Whether you're the pastor or whether you are just someone that walked in off the street sitting in a pew, it's important to be obedient. In Exodus 15 and verse number um, 26, he says, If you diligently heed... I think the old King James would say hearken to, hearken to, or here it says heed, the voice of the Lord your God and do. Everybody say do. Say this with me. I listen and I do. Say it again. I listen and I do. That's the essence of obedience to God. I hear and I do. Now, Whenever we read the Word, and especially when we hear the Word taught, preached, or we declare it, then we are hearing God. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I would just love to hear God. If I could just hear the voice of the Lord, if God would just speak to me audibly, if God would even maybe just send an angel and I could hear the voice of God. And the truth is, if you have a Bible, you have God's Word. Just lift it off the page. It's God talking to you. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes. And we know that, that uh, there were many statutes given in Moses' day to the people of Israel, but we also, and I hope you all understand this, that in the new covenant, our covenant, the church age, a believer today, our covenant with God is summed up in the great commandment, Love. If I love you, I won't steal from you. I don't need a commandment not to commit adultery if I walk in love. I don't need a commandment to not lie to you if I walk in love. So the great commandment of the New Testament is, is love. And it's loving God, loving others, and even you love yourself in the sense that love does what's best. So you do what's best for other people. And you do what's best for you, and you do whatever God says. And if you're doing that, he says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. In this place, in this passage, God revealed himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord your doctor, the Lord your physician, the Lord your healer. He revealed himself as this great God, Jehovah Rapha, and it is all tied, to receive the benefit of it, is tied to specific instructions. Obedience and healing. Obedience and healing. Think about 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, the Syrian general. Very important guy. Prideful guy. A guy that was used to giving orders, not taking them. He had all the, the hallmarks of somebody who 
thought he had it all together, except he had a terminal disease, a terminal and incurable disease called leprosy. So life changed. His wife had a little servant girl that had been taken as one of the captives of Israel. And she remembered the greatness of God and the miraculous power of God. And she told her, her uh, mistress, she said, I would that my Lord were in Samaria, where the man of God is. So that tells me that Elisha had a reputation for the miraculous, a reputation for the supernatural. You know, people should be saying to the sick, you need to get to Freedom Word Church. You need to get where the anointing flows. You need to get there because people get healed there. People, people's lives are changing. They, they need to be saying to people that, are, that are, are financially in trouble, you need to get to Freedom Word Church because they'll teach you biblical economics in such a way that you can give more than you've ever given and still have more than you've ever had. You can walk in the blessing of God. All kinds of those kind of things. Well, this little lady, this little young lady, she, she knew about Elisha the prophet. And so she said, I would that my Lord were in a Samaria. And, and the word got to uh, Naaman. And so he decided, and, and actually to the king of Syria. And uh, he evidently thought a lot of Naaman. Evidently, Naaman was an important person. He must have been very, very valuable to, to that kingdom. And so he said, I'm going to send you to the man of God, and I'm going to send you with all of these presents and gifts and everything. I'm going to send you for him to be healed. And so actually, they came first to the king. The king got all disturbed about the issue and finally got to uh, the man of God. And so he pulled up, Naaman and his entourage pulled up in front of Elisha's house. Now, you got the picture? All these animals and all this stuff piled up, these gifts, these changes of raiment. He brought all this uh, silver and, and, and all this stuff. I mean, it's just something to see. And here's a man, a very important man, a high-ranking general. He pulls up. And Elisha had a servant named Gehazi, sometimes we call him, or Gehazi. I don't know, but it just sounds more country to say Gehazi. And so Elisha did not send. I mean, Elisha didn't go out. He never bowed. He never curtsied. <laughs> he, he didn't even shake his hand. He sent Gehazi out and he said, you go tell him to go dip in Jordan seven times. Now think about what's going on here. Here's this important man laden with all his riches, ready to give gifts for whoever this was, that was this great prophet that was going to get him well and he thought he was talking to somebody that, you know, they were kind of on equal levels almost maybe. Or at least, you know, they, he was up there. He wasn't a peasant anymore. And he was going to talk to the man of God. And so he goes there and he goes to all this trouble. And the man of God does not even come out and speak to him. He sends a servant and tells him, go jump in the river. <laughs> and you know the story if you've read it. Naaman got incensed. He was mad. In other words, don't he know who I am? I brought all this stuff to, to make him rich. I've done all this, and he, won't, he didn't speak to me. I thought he would at least come out and, you know, wave his hand over the place or something. And he got mad and left in a huff. You know, people do that in church. 
they get mad and leave in a huff. I've been up here before praising the Lord, and I like to praise the Lord, and I like to try to sing. I enjoy worshiping the Lord. And, but, the, but the downside of being up here during praise and worship is you see when people aren't happy. <laughs> and so, you know, I've seen people, uh, you know, after we started going, I think they realized, you know, Mabel, this is the wrong place. We thought it was, fill in the blank, and it's not. So they just get up and leave. They just get up and leave. And so that's what Naaman did. He just got up and left. And he had a, he had a servant, uh, I guess a military attache or somebody in his, in his entourage who was smarter than the general that day. He said, if he would have told you to do something hard, you'd have done it. And I'm paraphrasing, you can read the story, but the bottom line is this, the essence is, all he told you was to go down and dip in this river seven times. Isn't it amazing? Not five, not three, one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Ghost. Not 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, but seven times, seven times. And so he, he told him, you know, you would have done it if it was difficult. And so he turned around his situation. He went down to the Jordan. He swallowed his pride. He repented in the sense that he changed what he chose to do. And he went down and he dipped in the Jordan. One time. Two times. Three times. Yes, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Four times. Can you imagine what he's thinking right now? I don't know where this leper spot was, but he's probably looking at it. Every... Five times. Still there. Six times. And then seven times. And the seventh time, his skin was like a baby's. Hallelujah. <laughs> Obedience. Obedience. Just doing what God said. That is a major part of spirit-filled church life. A major part of miracle ministry, a major part of healing ministry, a major part of financial prosperity and increase. You can't just do it any old way or what you want and when you want and how you want and where you want and say, well, the Lord's going to bless it. No, God says he's God. He thinks he's God and he knows you're not. And so he, he, he demands a degree of obedience. And sometimes in these particular and even what seems to us to be small things, we can just think that's not really that important. And, and it doesn't really matter. But oh, it matters. I mean, all the Bible is good. But one of the, and, and the Old Testament particularly gives us so many great lessons about so many different things. But one of the things you, you will notice if you read the Old Testament is that these specific commands, when God said something, He expected it to be done. 
And he was not willing to compromise. And he really didn't care what we thought. And so sometimes when the prompting of the Holy Ghost comes upon us, that we are to get into unity with believers. For instance, I'll just use this example. We're to get into unity with believers, and we're to, we're to, we're to enter into praise and worship and lift our voice. That's important to God. That we're supposed to get into unity with what God's doing in this particular place with believers, and we're supposed to tithe and give. That's a big deal to God. And just be honest. What have you, and I, and I say you, I, I mean myself as well. I'm preaching to me. But what have we ever fully figured out on our own and done on our own without God that really amounted to much? Let me ask another question. How much trouble have we gotten into when we did what we wanted, the way we wanted, the way we thought it ought to be, and we thought this wasn't so important, so we'll just do it this way? I mean, the answers are obvious. In James chapter, um, I'm sorry, not, not James, but uh, I think it is in the book of Luke chapter 9. Is that where it is? The blind man was told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. John, John. Well, I had put James. James and John. I, don't know, I, I guess I was thinking John and put James or... But John thought James. I don't know what I did, but anyway, I said John. Thank you, Nick. It's John chapter 9. And uh, he told the blind man who wanted his sight, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now think about this for a minute. He obviously was not at the pool of Siloam. And you would think you would tell a blind man, you wouldn't want to tell a blind man that he had to go anywhere else because it was going to be more difficult for him than, than, a, than a sighted person. You would think that Jesus would say, you know, um, I think I'm just going to lay hands on you and, and that's going to do the job. I mean, we could go a lot of ways here with this, so I won't take much time longer with that. But I think you understand there were different ways that Jesus touched people, healed people, delivered people in the Scriptures. I don't know why he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, except the general idea that this is what it was going to take to get him healed. And, and can I say this, because it's important to note, a lot of people don't realize that when Jesus was on the earth, he was led by the Spirit and anointed by the Spirit. Jesus did not minister from a deity position, though he was God. But because he chose to be manifest in flesh, he took upon himself limitations. Read Philippians 2 and 5, for instance. And those limitations required him to minister, basically, technically, if you want to know the truth of it, as a prophet and a teacher and a shepherd and an evangelist uh, and a... What's the other apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher? Under the Old Testament. He was still living under the Old Covenant. He was here to fulfill it, but it hadn't been fulfilled yet when we read about all these miracles of Jesus. And so what does that mean? That means that Jesus, of a necessity, had to be led by his Father 
through the Holy Spirit. Remember, he said, I only do what I see my father do, which means he only did what he was led to do. And the father would use the Holy Spirit to instruct him and lead him just like he does you. Because you too are a son or a daughter of God. And you also have the same spirit that anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Also you're baptized in the same spirit. Hallelujah. And so therefore, he ministered uh, according to the instruction of God. So I will say this, though I don't know all of the why-fors of it and wherefores of it, I do know this, that the reason he told that blind man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam was because that's what his father told him to say. That's what he heard the Holy Ghost say to him. Now, some of you are having a problem with what I'm just saying because that's maybe something you've never thought about before. Study it out. It's true. You see, Jesus was an example in so many ways, and this is one of the big ways to teach us how to be led by the Holy Spirit. Because God did anoint Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him, Acts 10, 38. And so he told him to go wash. Now, how many of you know that if the blind man had not went and washed, he would have died a blind man? And so I just really am wanting to get this point across that obedience is a key to the blessing of God. And it's a key to the spirit-filled life on an individual basis. And it is a key to the spirit-filled church. And so one of the things we see in the book of Acts is people were obedient. People were in one accord. People were people of prayer. They were in one place with one agenda. It's important where you go to church. The Holy Ghost was not poured out in the temple. You think about that. The temple built for the holiest of holies to be in the very uh, center of it. The Ark of the Covenant. And all that. But the Holy Ghost didn't fall there. The Holy Ghost fell in an upper room. We don't even know the street address. You know, we don't know if it was, you know, Madison Street or Smith Street or where it was. No, 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 no description other than a large furnished upper room. And so the point I'm making is it's important where you are. Sometimes people will move cross-country for a $40,000 a year pay increase, not knowing if there's a church there that's going to meet their needs, not knowing what's going to happen to their family if they fall out of the assembly and the, the routine of worshiping God. You know, wherever you take your children, that's where they're going to meet people that they'll eventually marry or whatever. Wherever you live is going to determine uh, to a great extent how you live. I would rather be where God wanted me to be as anywhere. I would rather be 
where there is a move of the Spirit of God, where the power of God's manifested, where people's lives are changed by the presence and the power of God, where I'm being fed the Word of God, where somebody is watching over my soul, where I can come and worship God freely in spirit and in truth, where there is a hunger and an intense desire for the things of the Spirit. I'd rather be there if the economy in that area is down the tubes, as we say. Because I know one thing, that if I'm where there's a move of God, He's going to meet my needs. If I'm where there's a move of God, He's going to supply every need I have. He's going to take care of me. Hallelujah. Get involved with His business, and He'll get involved with yours. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1 is an Old Testament prophetic verse. And the prophet spoke and said, Ask, and this is God speaking through it, Ask ye of the Lord, rain. In other words, pray for rain. When? When it's a drought? Well, it's interesting. This verse says, in the time of the latter rain. So we would expect rain, or we at least know it's time for rain. But he says to pray. In Acts chapter 2, the early believers here, whether they fully realized it at that point or not, were practicing Zechariah 10.1. And they were practicing what they were doing based on prophecies that Joel the prophet had made about the Spirit of God being poured out in the last days. You see, sometimes we are led by the Spirit of God in line with scriptures and scriptural principles, and we don't even realize all that's happening. That's why sometimes you just have to, you just have to take that next step. We walk by faith, not by sight. You're not necessarily going to know everything a year in advance, two years in advance. You may have a five-year plan, nothing wrong with that, but uh, your five-year plan may not match God's, and he may not tell you five years, but he may tell you five days. He may tell you five minutes. And the rest of your day may depend on that five minutes, whether it's a good day or not. Obedience. But they were praying. They were praying and they were, they were crying out to God for whatever this promise of the Father is. Jesus said we we're going to get it. And they were praying and they were one accord. They were in unity in their prayer. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit came on God's divine timetable in God's designated place for that moment and also in response to the prayers of those people. You see, God has so designed in His sovereignty, by the way, that He would not carry out His purposes for the church without the cooperation of the church. That's why you can have a dead church if you want one. That's not God's will. That's not the plan. But if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Because God is going to carry out His purposes when you cooperate. And God in His sovereignty has designed it that way. And maybe that's a scary thought for a lot of people. Maybe they think that's, you know, that's, that's over the top. I don't know if I can accept that. Just go back and read the Bible. Who did God ever make a robot? Nobody. And so, prayer is a key. Luke eleven thirteen says, How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Man, Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of that passage. Amen. It's so important that we are in an atmosphere in a church where there's obedience to the move of the Spirit of God, 
where there is a strong prayer emphasis and where there is unity. That's one of the reasons that as a pastor, I, will, I refuse to do without praying. I refuse to, to, uh, I, I refuse to do without the um, option to obey God in any given circumstance, any service, any time, Sunday, Wednesday, live stream, no live stream, whatever, it doesn't matter that we obey God. It's not my agenda. It's not your agenda. It's God's agenda. And then number, number three, I, I refuse that we would, uh, that we would do without um, unity. You say, how, how, do you, how does that matter? Well, if, if you don't walk in, in unity with us, then you just have to sit down and be quiet. It's pretty simple. We won't stop you from coming, but you, you're not going to make trouble. And if it's a devil, we will deal with the devil. And if you want the devil and don't want us to deal with the devil, then we have people here that will remove you and the devil from the premises. It just just ain't going to happen. I'm not going to have people who work around me who are constantly criticizing and coming against what's going on, going in the back and talking about, you know, this is bad, this is wrong, this, that, and the other. I don't need that. God doesn't need it. There are too many people that want to walk in unity to ever put up with that mess. He said, well, that doesn't sound much in love. I love the sheep here enough to not allow that mess to get in here. One reason some people aren't here is because they can't run the show. They can't do what they want to do. They can't take over. I'll let the Holy Ghost take over any day. But old Joe Blow will have to go somewhere else to do his thing. Amen? Can you say amen? And if you truly are a sheep, you would say, praise God, there's safety there. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to go to Acts 8 and I'm going to close. Now You know it's only 19 minutes till 12. And you already think I've preached all day. But I've just got a little bit more. I, I want to, This is just too good not to throw out there. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to read about Philip going down to uh, Samaria. And we're talking about uh, what the church looks like in the book of Acts. And so here's the, the planting of a church in, in Samaria through Philip who began his ministry as a deacon or a servant in the church. And God had called him on into the ministry of an evangelist. As a matter of fact, Philip is the only person called by name an evangelist in the New Testament. And of course there were others, but, but he's the only one whose name is called and specifically says he was an evangelist. But anyway, chapter 8 verse 4 says there, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8 verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice. You're reading of what a New Testament church service looks like. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice. <laughs> came out of many. Notice, came out. They didn't disrupt the service and cause them to have to dismiss and go home. They were just dealt with and went their way. Yeah. Amen. Came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. 
And there was great joy. Everybody say joy. Joy in the city. If you weren't here Wednesday, you need to hear Wednesday night's message about joy. Hallelujah. Now, we're going to stop there just for a moment because this is a, this is a, a wonderful picture of a New Testament gathering, a New Testament revival. But what I want to emphasize before we go today is the word Christ. Verse 5, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. The word Christ is from the Greek word Christos, and we've kind of just transliterated. There are a few words in the New Testament that basically were just transliterated from the original language. Uh, baptism is one, uh, the Greek word baptizo, and then Christ is one, Christos. And um, what Christ means is the anointed one. It's the New Testament uh, equivalent or the New Testament version of the Old Testament word Messiah. In the Old Testament, the, the, you see the word Messiah. That's who Israel was looking for. And then in the New Testament, you see the word Christ. And it's talking about the same person, talking about Jesus. And of course, Christ means the anointed one. So what that also means is we're talking about the person of Christ, but we're also talking about the anointing that was upon Christ. And the reason that's important to us is because you've got that same anointing. It's on you. You're the body of Christ. You're the body of the anointed one. Well, how could you be the body of the anointed one and have no anointing? Amen. So Philip preached Christ to them. And so we see and we read about the supernatural operations and the results. Great joy, many salvations, many people were set free. And of course, you can read later on that there were, they were having water baptisms and then a little later on than that, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and, and uh, we understand about that. We've talked about it before. But what I want you to do is go back to Luke 16, and this is where we'll close today. Luke chapter 16, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a passage here where Jesus asked the question of the disciples. And Peter, as often was the case, was the first, it seems, to speak up and answer Sometimes he got it right, sometimes he didn't, but this time he got it right. Luke chapter 16, um, I think I've got the wrong um, verse again. I'll have to find it. Matthew 16? Maybe so. I don't know what was happening when I was writing these notes. <laughs> I was in the wrong books. Matthew 16? I think, who said that? Michael, I think you're right. You're right. Do you want to come up and preach this? <laughs> you're, doing a, you're doing a better job than I am right now. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Simple question. Who do men say that I am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, and now this is the important question, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say? 
That's a good question for us to be asked today, each and every one of us. Who do you say he is? Well, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the what? The Christ. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, here's what I really want you to see before we go today. Peter obviously got a revelation to know this. Because Jesus, in verse 17, answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he got a revelation of who Jesus was. And when he got that revelation and when he knew who Jesus was, then notice what happened in verse 18. And I, say, and I also say to you that you are Peter. You're a piece of the rock. In other words, when Peter realized and was willing to say that he knew who Jesus was, then Jesus told Peter, this is who you are. This is who you are. You see, my identity, your identity is wrapped up in who Jesus is. It's not about my pedigree. It's not about my ancestors. It's not about where I was born, when I was born. It's not about my physical DNA. All that has its place. I'm not saying it isn't important. It has no significance to my life. But my spiritual life isn't wrapped up in any of that. My spiritual life is wrapped up in who Jesus is. And when you know who Jesus is, when you know about the Christ, when you know about the Christos, when you know about the Anointed One and His anointing, that's when God is able to show you who you are in the anointing, who you are in Christ, who you are in the power of the name of Jesus. So confess who you are in Christ. Experience and enjoy His fullness in you, His life in you right now. That's part of what New Testament church is about. It's about coming and realizing and explaining and, and learning and then praising and confessing and shouting who we are in Christ. It's about the anointing. It's about letting Christ do what Christ does. Jesus wasn't in Samaria in the flesh. He wasn't there in a physical body. He sent Philip down and Philip was his re representative. He represented Jesus. He represented him. He was Christ's ambassador. And that's who you are on your job, in your neighborhood, in your house, in the grocery store, wherever you go, whoever you are around, you represent Jesus, the Christ. Hallelujah. And so our services not only are, are accented by and focused upon the Christ as we meet for worship, but we take that same anointing and that same presence away from here when we leave and we take it to wherever we will go today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and on and on and on. Hallelujah. That's New Testament Christianity. It's not some ritual shut up between four walls in a dark, dusty, smelly old place. But it's about the life and the ministry of Jesus coming to bear on the earth in which we're living right now in tough times, bad times, troubled times, worrisome times, fearful times in the world, shortages and all the other messes that are out there. We can stand and say, I know the anointed one and I know his anointing and he is in me and I'm in him and his power is upon me and I will be blessed and I will be a blessing no matter what happens. That's Christianity. Hallelujah. Let's stand up and praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
for New Testament Church. Thank you, Jesus, for the anointing and the anointed one. We are in him. He is in us. The anointing of the Holy Spirit destroys yokes and removes bondages and removes burdens. And we understand, Lord, that the spirit that we are anointed with and the spirit that abides within us and the spirit that is upon us for ministry is the exact same spirit that you were anointed with. The exact same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And you told us in Romans 8:11 that if the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that that spirit will quicken or give life to these mortal bodies. These death-doomed bodies, these bodies that are only temporary, we're only going to use them a while. But while we need them, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that resurrection power will work in us to bring healing, change, and a cure. Lord, there may be somebody here today. They need that power. They need that manifestation. They need to experience that goodness of God for their own healing. Lord, I believe you, that you're here to heal. I believe you're here to save. You might be here today and you say, I don't know Jesus or I'm not right with God. While I've said it a number of times over the years and it's Bears repeating, salvation is not as fragile as some in the Christian world have thought. But neither do you have carte blanche to live like the devil and expect to go to heaven. Somewhere in the middle, there's a truth about loving God and serving God. There's a truth about our commitment to Him and His commitment to us. If there's sin in your life, right now ask Him to forgive you. Right now, say, Jesus, cleanse me afresh and anew with your blood. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me. If you've never known Jesus, say, Lord Jesus, I believe in my heart that you died for my sins and I believe you rose again. You're alive. And I ask you to cleanse my sins and make me a new creature in Christ. I will serve you all the days of my life. I confess, I believe, I accept, I take Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name. If you do that, you're as ready for heaven as the oldest saint in the room. It's not by our works. It's by the grace of God. Maybe you're here today and you say, I've never been filled with the Spirit yet. I, I want that. I, I, I need that.